This audio recording is of Restoration Road's regular Sunday service, July 9th, 2017. The speaker is Mark Haxo. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Welcome to Restoration Road Church. My name is Mark. I'm one of the elders in, at this church, and it's a privilege that I have from time to time, especially this summer, since uh, Pastor Sam is on uh, sabbatical for the entirety of the summer, uh, to be able to preach to you this morning uh, more often than I do. Um, and we've had a variety of gifts before us this summer. It's been, I don't know how you felt about it, but I've enjoyed um, hearing from some of the other pastors that we have, not just here at our church, but also in our three-strand network. And so it's um, one of the benefits, uh, perceived benefits, one of the ones that we actually feel that we actually get to have uh, our uh, pulpit filled by uh, some of these other men who have brought the word to us. So uh, in the past month or so, we've been going through the book of 2 Timothy, and uh, we've learned a little bit about uh, the circumstances surrounding the writing of that book. Uh, we've heard about Paul, the apostle, and his relationship that he had with his young friend Timothy. Uh, they had been co-workers for a number of years, and we know that Timothy was pastoring a church in Ephesus. Uh, one of the places that Paul had, one of the churches that Paul had also written a letter to. We know that uh, the circumstances of Paul himself in his life at the time he wrote this letter was that he was sitting in a prison, a Roman prison, and he was quite certain that his time was coming to a close here on this earth. In fact, he prophesies uh, in the fourth chapter of this book that the time of my departure is at hand. And so we're going to be hearing more about that in the weeks to come. But as we're studying this book, uh, it's just good to uh, remind ourselves that this was some wisdom that Paul himself had not only accrued during a lifetime of ministry, or at least a second part of his life, ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ, the lessons that he had learned along the way, but also uh, revelations that he himself had, had received from God himself, and he was imparting this wisdom to his young friend Timothy, who he considered to be his very own son, uh, at least his son in the faith. And so today, we're going to be uh, reading from the second chapter, uh, beginning with the 14th verse. So if you have your Bible, open it up to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to begin with verse 14. We'll read the first section of this passage. We are going to go all the way to the end of the chapter eventually, but we're going to start with uh, the first part where it says this, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And I'm going to stop there for a moment before we read the rest of it. Last week, Pastor Jim Fickert from Communion Church was here, and he preached the previous passage about 
about faithfulness and about enduring suffering as a, as a, as a disciple of Jesus. And uh, now when we, we, we go on to this passage, Paul is reminding or telling Timothy to remind uh, the church about these things, about the glorious truth of the gospel and about how faithfulness and suffering are to be part of that. Paul instructs Timothy uh, about this truth, and he reminds them that they are not to quarrel, quarrel about words. Why is that? Well, he answers himself. He says, it does no good, and it will only bring ruin to the hearers. Paul's admonition to avoid quarrels is, is common in his epistles. We see that in the very next book, in Titus. He also uh, encourages Titus to, uh, to not be engaged in foolish questions and foolish controversies and stuff like that. Um, in this case, he's very concerned as he uh, writes to Timothy that, that these, these quarrels can quickly uh, turn into uh, trouble. Uh, war over words can uh, bring trouble not only to the lives of believers, but it can bring trouble into the church as well. The gospel of God is, is a simple truth. Uh, the, the gospel that Paul preached uh, as he went around uh, planting churches um, was never meant to be a complicated truth. Um, at its core, it was a simple message of good news that Jesus Christ has come into this world to save sinners, that he had lived a perfect life uh, of obedience to God, following the law completely, and had offered himself as a completely uh, pure sacrifice to the Heavenly Father to, to, um, to atone for the sins of mankind. And that through just receiving that news and believing it, one can have complete remission of sins and, and can have salvation of their undying soul. But sometimes the simple news of the gospel gets messed up. And it gets mixed up. And, and, and simple words of, 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 of Scripture can even get misinterpreted. Um, and, and over the years of 2,000 years of church history, we've seen how often that has happened, where, where very clear passages of the Bible have been misinterpreted and misapplied. And um, quite honestly, when you look around in our world today and you see the thousands of of different denominations and the thousands of different types of churches, that is one reason why we have so much uh, disunity, I might say, in the uh, body of Christ today. So Paul tells Timothy that the antidote uh, to this is to present himself to God as one who's been approved and to uh, be a worker who needs not to be ashamed, to rightly handle the word of truth, or as it can also be translated, rightly divide the word of truth, which simply and literally means cutting straight the word of God. The apostle appeals to Timothy for, for some real effort to be made, uh, to study and to properly interpret uh, and apply the word of God. And I would say that the greatest responsibility that a pastor has is preaching 
and teaching the Word of God correctly. Every pastor has a great charge to know and to understand that simple gospel truth of salvation that has been revealed in the pages of Scripture for us. The importance for a pastor to have a correct understanding of Bible doctrine is huge. And while no pastor or no Christian has a perfectly 100% correct understanding of every doctrine of the Bible, uh, it is his duty to make sure that his understanding of Christian doctrine is sourced in and rooted in the Bible. The Bible is, in fact, God's revelation to us. And as often is said, that everything that we need to know about life, about faith, about salvation, can be founded in the very pages of the Bible that we are reading today. The Apostle James cautions that not many should be teachers. Not many should be teachers of the Word of God because uh, for them there is a stricter judgment. The effects of false understandings which lead to erroneous teaching can be devastating. Paul here compares it to gangrene, which is a medical condition where uh, an infection caused by either bacteria or a lack of blood supply or blood flow uh, ends up literally killing a member of your body, whether it be your finger or your hand or your toe or your foot. Uh, it ends up eventually uh, killing it completely off. It's, it's, it's something that may start out as a simple uh, sore on your finger or your toe, and eventually it ends up taking your whole hand or your whole foot. Similarly, uh, bad doctrine or false doctrine usually starts with a small error that, that leads to greater and greater error until what you end up having is a situation like Paul is describing here with uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus uh, who are apparently professing Christians who began preaching a false narrative of the resurrection. A false narrative that said the resurrection had already happened. They weren't talking about Christ's resurrection. They were talking about the resurrection that we as believers believe will happen one day when Christ returns uh, the second time and our bodies that are in the grave will rise again to be reunited with our souls. They believed that uh, it was not a literal or physical resurrection of the human body at the time of Christ's return, but a spiritual one. And so their false teaching had led many others astray in the church. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul also warned uh, Timothy in the first chapter, verse 18 to 20. He said, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So, <clears throat> Paul names Hymenaeus earlier in his first epistle, and he also names another guy named Alexander. So, there was Hymenaeus, Alexander, and Philetus. There was, there was Three, at least, who had, um, in this case, Paul says, become shipwrecked in their faith. 
Apparently their sin began with what Paul describes as a quarreling over words and irreverent babble, which led more and more into ungodliness. Irreverent babble can be defined as disrespectful, foolish, or meaningless conversation. And there's probably not one of us here that's uh, completely innocent of, of, of never having conducted that type of speech ourselves. But it's especially uh, serious when we're talking about uh, irreverent babble within the church. And that is what Paul is really uh, warning us against. It seems that these, these different men, they're, uh, Alexander and Hymenaeus and uh, Philetus, their descent into uh, heresy followed a particular order. Uh, although they had made a public profession of faith in Christ, they had not turned away from evil. Uh, their profane teaching had led toward more ungodliness. This led to the abandonment of the faith that they had first professed. And the final result is what Paul calls a shipwreck of their faith. Well, this was uh, more than likely an early form of uh, one of the very first heresies to infect the church called Gnosticism, which I'm sure some of you have heard of before. But Gnosticism taught that there was a mysterious or secret knowledge reserved for those with true understanding, leading to the salvation of the soul. They believed in spiritual resurrection because they believed that the human body was evil and that the goal of the spiritual life was to free the spirit from its imprisoned body. And the only key to unlock the prison doors was the mysterious knowledge that they possessed. This was a result, Paul says, of quarreling over words and engaging in irreverent babble. And all of this took place well before the internet was invented. In fact, it's my understanding that Al Gore hadn't even been born yet. Now, do you think that this might be a problem, this type of uh, irreverent babble? Do you think that it might be a problem in, in today's uh, wired, digital, connected internet world? Well, I don't know if you've... Um, actually Googled uh, like religious debate or uh, Christian debate or any type of thing like that on, on, on the internet. And if you do, you'd be amazed at the, the amount of conversation and debate uh, that is going on. And, and a lot of it is just uh, a debate where it's they're trying to uh, dismiss Christianity and trying to downplay the truth of the Bible. Um, <clears throat> But there is uh, literally, um, through uh, in social media and other groups that are specific to discussing and debating theology, uh, differences in doctrine and religious beliefs, there's literally no limit to the amount of material that is being discussed. Now, maybe some of it is good, uh, but I'm sure that a lot of it falls uh, into the category that just Paul describes as irreverent babble. So, while this false teaching had impacted the church in some way, Paul gives uh, to Timothy hope and admonition by saying that the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. In other words, those who are uh, truly belonging to the Lord and are known by him uh, are secure. Uh, if you have been saved, 
if you have uh, received the salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, if you have been transformed by His Spirit, been given a new heart, and if you have been um, uh, made into a new creation in Jesus Christ, uh, the Bible is, 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 is really clear about this, that, that you will not be lost by God. Jesus himself promises that, of those that you have given me, Lord, I have lost none. And so we know that uh, as believers that we will not, even though we will fail and we will fall in this lifetime, we will never fall away fully and finally. That's something that should give every one of us uh, a measure of comfort and security, knowing that uh, our salvation does not depend upon our own ability to, to um, obey God in the sense that we have to be perfect. Because we know we're not perfect. And we know that we're going to fall and but, but God's grace carries us and will bring us to the, uh, to the uh, end goal of, um, of life eternal. But he also um, talks about the, um, this where he says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The Christian life is marked by a process which we call sanctification. Uh, that is, we are engaged in a lifelong uh, repentance of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Old patterns of sin are abolished in favor of new ways of living which are in conformity to the will and the Word of God. Uh, the Bible calls this uh, the putting off and the putting on, as in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, where Paul describes this process of how it is that we move from being uh, ungodly pagans or unbelievers in this world and how it is that we're moved over to uh, some semblance of holiness uh, as a Christian. So he says, Now this I say and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Then he says, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So this is what he's saying. He's saying you were, you were just like everybody else, and that's true. We're not born as, uh, as Christians. We're not born as believers. We're born with a sin nature that we carry throughout our life, but we don't have a, a new divine holy nature from God. And so we, especially if we, if we live in a, in a, a home where, where Christ isn't preached, uh, we live our life according to our old nature, don't we? We live uh, according to the passions of our flesh. So what Paul is saying is that when you got to know Jesus Christ, he says you need to put off that old self. And then you need to be renewed through, your, through the spirit of your mind. You need to renew your mind. And then you need to put on your new self. So he describes that as like a three-step process. Put off, 
renew your mind, and put on. He echoes the same sentiment in Romans chapter 12 too, where he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing uh, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now what I believe Paul is not saying uh, in all of this is that, that we shouldn't engage at all in debate over matters of doctrine. Uh, which are essential to the Christian faith, uh, or even vital, or, or even those vital issues of secondary uh, importance. Uh, the only difference is that with secondary issues, those uh, we may debate uh, vigorously, uh, but we should not divide over them. We should be willing to defend the truth uh, of the gospel when it is under attack. Uh, but we need to have a clear idea in our minds uh, what those matters are which are essential to Christianity and uh, what are those issues with, of which are secondary importance. Now, essential to the Christian faith are doctrines which are clearly communicated in the Bible uh, and have stood the test of 2,000 years of church history, uh, such as uh, the Trinity, that God is one God, but he's revealed himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit. Uh, an essential uh, teaching of Christianity is that Jesus Christ himself, being the second person of the Godhead, is God, that he is divine in, in, his, in his nature, in his being. But that, that he's not just divine, but he's also human, in the sense that he is a, is a, is a, a, he's one person with two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature. That's essential to Christianity. Essential to Christianity are also such uh, biblical teachings, such as the virgin birth of Christ, uh, the sinlessness of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Another essential that we believe in is that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And another one is that we believe that one day Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. We believe that's an essential of Christianity. We also believe that essential to Christianity is the belief that salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, because of Christ alone, and not because of any meritorious works that we could do. We believe that is an essential of our faith. Now, secondary issues are, are issues that godly people disagree on. Christians can disagree on, but not divide on, okay? Um, these are people who love the gospel, believe the gospel, they love the Lord, they, they love the Bible, they love the Word, but have come to differing interpretations um, about certain things. Uh, the reason is because perhaps the Bible is not as clear about a certain issue, so it can genuinely be looked at in a couple of different ways, or maybe three different ways. Um, or maybe the Bible just doesn't really address a certain issue. And let me give you a few examples of what those are. Um, these are differences in um, uh, mode and timing of baptism. So we know that, uh, for, for example, as a church, we practice what we call believer baptism, where we wait for... Uh, child to profess and possess faith in Jesus Christ and that 
as parents were, were comfortable that there has been salvation in their souls before they would be baptized. Or, or maybe it takes a little longer for some and a little shorter for others. But we know that there's, and we also do baptism by immersion or full immersion. We know that there's other believers out there who believe that infants can be baptized or should be baptized. Um, and there's differing reasons why differing churches or you know, doctrine, doctrinal physicians believe that it, it's for one reason or another. Um, but they also believe that sprinkling is acceptable as a, as a, as a mode of baptism as well. So these are different uh, understandings of the, of the sacrament of baptism. Now, we can defend vigorously um, our position of baptism. We can say we believe the Bible teaches that baptism is reserved for those who have, have been able to articulate the gospel or articulate their salvation in some form or another. All right? And, and someone on the infant side of baptism can also do the same with regard to their position. And we'll all go to the Bible to defend our position. Right? Who's right and who's wrong? Now, we might say, we're right. They might say, well, no, you're wrong, we're right. Well, what's important here? Is this, do we have to decide, is this, is this an issue that we're going to divide on as Christians? And we're going we're to say, no, you're outside of Christianity because you don't understand it in the right way. Well, I would say that because of the history that we look back on uh, and, and uh, the people we know who, who hold the other positions, um, that this is not an issue that we would divide on. We debate it, but we don't need to divide on it. All right. What are some other issues that... Um, are secondary in, in, uh, in, in position to the, that which is essential. I would say uh, differing forms of church government. That, that's one that, you know, again, that's one reason why there's a lot of different denominations because people differ on their understanding of how a church needs to be governed, how it needs to be led. We believe that a church is most biblical when it's an elder-led church. Um, other churches believe that it should be a congregational style of government where everyone has a voice of equal, you know, uh, standing, and that decisions are made together. Um, what about um, some other ones here? Um, differing styles of, of, of worship, uh, patterns of worship. So you can have liturgical worship in a church. You can have uh, non-liturgical. You can have uh, traditional or contemporary worship. Uh, we're not going to divide over those things. Uh, you can have uh, differences in details of eschatology. Uh, that's, a, that's a real big one, actually, meaning events that will precede the second coming of Christ. So whether you're uh, amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, whether you believe in the rapture or no rapture, whether you believe um, that there's a tribulation period that's coming for seven years toward the end of the world, or uh, what you believe about Israel and Israel's uh, involvement in end times, all of those things are what we would consider to be uh, secondary in, uh, in position to uh, how, we, how we are to uh, deal with those. So, not essential to salvation. They're important. We can debate them. We can talk about them. But we don't want to get into a war over words either and quarrel about them either, do we? That's what Paul's getting at. So, <clears throat> churches, pastors, and ordinary Christians can run into uh, big problems uh, and, and big trouble 
in at least two different ways when it comes to, to essentials and non-essentials. Number one, if you have a wrong understanding of, a, of an essential doctrine, that's a problem. So if your understanding of Jesus Christ is that he was a, a creation of God's, not, a, not a, the creator himself, then that's a problem of an essential nature. Um, the second uh, problem you can have is if you take uh, a secondary issue and you raise it to the level of an essential, um, that's a problem. Because then what you end up doing is you end up uh, judging the standing or salvation of, of a Christian who disagrees with you. So if you believe that there's going to be a rapture and you meet a Christian who says, no, I don't believe there's going to be a rapture, and you say, well, you're going to hell. That's a problem. We can't do that. Uh, church has over the years battled false doctrine uh, of an essential nature many times. If you know anything about uh, church history, you've, you've read about an early uh, heresy that was propagated by a man named Arius. Uh, he taught that Christ did not have a divine nature. So this is probably one of the earliest times that we see this uh, misunderstanding of an essential Christian doctrine uh, was, in, is, was in about 300 A.D. He believed that God was originally alone in heaven before creating Jesus, who then created everything else. Uh, this was seen as false teaching, and the church at the time convened a council in Nicaea, about A.D. 325, and they wanted to unify around the correct understanding of the divine nature of Christ. And they determined that he was true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. And that's part of what they, uh, the creed that they developed, which we know as the Nicene Creed, which, which is all about uh, defining and defending the deity of Jesus Christ. Well, uh, because Arius' teachings persisted, and... Um, and uh, he continued to teach his uh, heretical doctrine of who Christ is, uh, the church convened another council in about 450, 451 in Chalcedon. And um, this time they hammered out the doctrine of the dual nature of Christ. So now they, they determine together that, okay, so what does the Bible teach us? What do the early you know, apostles teach us about who Jesus is? Is he... Is he also uh, human in nature? Or is he just divine in nature? What was this all about his, his humanity? So, so they came up with another creed, and um, this time they, uh, they uh, put into word, words and codified the understanding and the doctrine that we hold to be essential that uh, Christ was, uh, was a man with dual natures. And... Um, that while he was fully God, he was at the same time fully man. Unfortunately, these false understandings of the nature of Christ still exist widely, especially in certain cults today. Uh, in fact, I would say that most heretical teachings that are being taught today, they're not new at all. They're merely recycled garbage from the past 2,000 years or so of, of, of men getting doctrine wrong. So, uh, therefore, I, I, I believe that it is necessary for us to be equipped. Equipped with the Word of God so that we can make a case for Christ today. 
equipped so that when we are confronted with a counterfeit gospel, we can recognize it instantly. And, and, and also, uh, we can be discerning enough to not get involved in vain discussions, which Paul calls irreverent babble. A good rule for us to always think about when we're uh, talking about uh, essential versus non-essential doctrine is that in the essentials, we need to have unity. In the non-essentials, or the secondary issues, we need to have liberty, but in all things, charity. That's a, that's a saying that's been around for a long time, but it's a good one to follow. Anyway, let's go on with uh, our, our, our text today with verse 20. Verse 20 says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So having contrasted true and false teachers, Paul now points to a second contrast. Contrast between honorable and dishonorable vessels. And um, talks about a great home that has stuff in it that is reserved for, for honorable use. And, and has stuff in it that's reserved for dishonorable use. Uh, you're, you're thinking, and you may be thinking, what is he talking about? What kind of stuff? What kind of vessels is he talking about? Well, maybe if you look at it this way, um, in your home you may have a cabinet that has fine china in it that is, is, is reserved for just very, the most special of occasions. It may be when uh, the queen comes to visit, for example. That's when you'll pull that out. Or maybe it's just, uh, if anyone comes for dinner, you'll use it. But it, at any rate, it is, it is, those are vessels you've reserved for honorable use. Now, in your home, you probably also have a toilet plunger. Now, a toilet plunger is probably not something that you consider to be honorable, uh, but it does have a purpose that, in some ways, we might consider dishonorable. But it does have a purpose. Uh, but you don't pull it out whenever company comes, right? <laughs> At least you hope you don't. Um, but anyway, um, just as these vessels are found in a great home, Paul is comparing that somehow to the church, that, that in a church we also have honorable and dishonorable vessels. And so what is he talking about? Well, I think he's talking about this idea that um, uh, bad doctrine and, and a life of ungodliness in a Christian makes you in some way a dishonorable vessel. That you are dishonoring the Lord by the way that you're teaching or the way that you're living your life. Uh, versus if you are teaching good doctrine, you're living your life in a way that is in conformity to God's word, God's will, uh, you're living a life of, of uh, honor before the Lord. Um, a person who names Christ as their Savior but is not submitting to Him as Lord is not useful uh, to the master of the house, is what Paul is saying. Master of the house is Jesus. Uh, in Ephesians 2, verse 10, Paul tells us that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, uh, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, we can't be ready for the good works that God has prepared for us when we are walking in rebellion 
in disobedience and ungodliness. Paul's message to Timothy and to us as well is this, that if we are unclean in terms of our doctrine or our life, we don't have to lose hope because in the gospel there's always hope. There's always new life in the gospel. There's always forgiveness. We can be made into honorable vessels by cleansing ourselves from that which is dishonorable. And ultimately, it's through the gospel that we are cleaned. It's not through our own uh, goodness. It's not through uh, our own work uh, that we are made clean. Just to be clear about that. In this, Paul is reiterating the principle, I believe, of putting off and putting on. And I think that is clear as we read the next verse where in verse 22, Paul says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, love, or righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In other words, he says, put off the youthful passion and put on the righteousness, faith, love, and peace. You know, God is actually concerned about how we live our lives. Uh, God is concerned that we repent of sin. That means we turn away from sin and that we endeavor to uh, put sin out of our lives. Uh, God is concerned that we live lives of integrity and honesty. He is concerned that we love Him above all and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. God is concerned uh, about we men and how we love our lives our wives faithfully uh, by having eyes only for her. Uh, God is concerned that we love and protect our children and teach them to love Jesus. God is honored and glorified when you children obey and honor your parents and when you do your chores and complete your homework. God is glorified and He is pleased. But to be clear, only when done in faith. The Bible tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Meaning that only when done out of response to the gospel, which has saved us from the wrath of God, only when the heart is first right with God, or else Jesus would have been pleased by the work and efforts made by the Pharisees, wouldn't it be? But because he could see their hearts, he knew their motivation was not to glorify God in what they were doing, but their motivation was to make themselves look good before men and that they would receive the praise of men. In this too, we have to always be careful to check our own hearts, our own motivations, so that our lives are not lived for the praise of men, but only for the praise and honor of God. Know this, you will fail you will sin. You will fall short of perfection time and time again. But when you know Christ and you believe the gospel, you're free. And that freedom gives you uh, all kinds of options. And the options are, are this. You can confess your weakness. You can confess your sinfulness. You can confess your sin. Uh, you can admit that you're weak and trust in God. That He is working in you by His Spirit and little by little, you are being transformed uh, from one degree of glory to another. 
Paul instructs Timothy that the first step in cleansing yourself from what is dishonorable to become a vessel for honorable use uh, is to flee youthful passions. In this way, he says, you can be set apart as holy. You can be useful to the master of the house. You can be ready for every good work. Flee youthful passions. His use of the word flee connotes danger. Such danger to your soul that the only prudent response is to flee. Flee. Flee like Joseph did when he was being uh, pursued by Potiphar's wife. In the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, we learn about Joseph. He's, he's a servant to Potiphar's wife. Uh, his wife is uh, attracted to Joseph, and time and time again, she comes on to him trying to tempt him to sin with her. Finally, she grabs a hold of him when there's no one else in the house. She says, lay with me in his haste to flee the temptation. He even leaves his, uh, his cloak behind. That is, the, that is the word that is being used here. It is literally when that temptation of youthful passion comes upon you, flee. Get away from it. I think that sometimes uh, we downplay the effect that sin can have on our lives. Uh, when you're young especially, it's easy to fall into the myth that sexual sin is harmless as long as you're not married. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, is that sinful sexual patterns are very difficult to break free from, even after you get married. Dabbling in sexual sin is more harmful to your soul and can become more addictive than both heroin or cocaine. Drugs scar your body, but sexual sin scars your soul. As someone who has counseled uh, many married couples, I have seen firsthand the damage that youthful desires and passions can carry on into marriage. Now, youthful passions obviously include illicit sexual activity, but uh, it also includes other lusts such as pride and, and uh, desire for wealth and power, jealousy, self-assertiveness, argumentative spirit. But Paul says it's not enough to just flee youthful desires. We must turn and run in the right direction. So he says, you turn away and flee the youthful desires and you pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. The old patterns of sin must be replaced by a new pattern of living that's marked by these four virtues of righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And he finishes the sentence by saying, along with those who call upon the Lord with a pure heart. What this tells me is that our prayers to God may not be acceptable or even heard by God if they come, except they come from a pure heart. Not saying you have to be sinless. No one is. But if you're living in rebellion to God and naming the name of Christ, uh, God won't answer your prayers. Hear what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7. He's teaching husbands how to be godly husbands. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So your prayers may not be hindered. He also 
makes this point in First uh, Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In other words, I think Peter is saying if you're abusing your wife, if you're not loving and cherishing her as you ought, God will not hear your prayers. Now, the other possible meaning here is, is that if you are in unrepentant sin, your desire to pray is hindered, which also means that God won't hear your prayers because you're not praying at all. Well, let's read the rest of this chapter. Verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Here Paul once again reminds Timothy uh, to avoid the shallow, pointless bickering uh, which he warned about in verse 16. Foolish controversies can, can really be ignorant, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or can God make a rock so heavy that he couldn't lift it? Uh, but they can also be foolish misunderstandings of the crucifixion, like the one that's propagated by the Jehovah's Witnesses, that, that Christ died on a torture stake and not on a cross. Or it can be foolish uh, controversy that many churches of a certain ilk believe and are willing and desire to spend much time trying to convince you and others of in, that is that the King James translation is the only right translation in English. And that no other translation should be used. It could be uh, a foolish controversy by uh, people who teach that because Christ fulfilled the law of God, therefore the law of God has no application for Christians at all. All of these can turn into foolish controversies which only breed quarrels. Now, the only right response for the follower of Christ, and for particularly uh, for his servants, is to avoid quarreling, be kind to everyone, uh, able to teach. And the re I think the reason he says able to teach here is because uh, those who are so busy, uh, especially on the Internet, uh, with all this chatter and, and babble about all these different doctrinal things, uh, they're not teaching. They're not they're not able to teach. Uh, but Paul says that a servant of God is, is, needs to be able to teach, patiently enduring evil, even when it's hard. He didn't say that, but it, it probably is hard at times. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. The goal always being repentance and knowledge of the truth. That's the goal. The goal is always to turn those who have strayed. Uh, even when he talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander, he says that he's turned them over to Satan. Why would he even say something like that? It would be for the salvation of their soul. That's ultimately the goal. Anytime, uh, especially a pastor, is, is having to patiently endure evil, it's always with the goal of repentance and the knowledge of the truth. Great wisdom we find in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, where it's written, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. See, there's a time when we answer and there's a time when we don't. 
There's a, there's a way in which we answer, and there's a way in which we don't. All right, in closing, I want to remind you that if you are a Christian, you have been given much, much more than you deserve. By faith, you have received that which money, influence, or effort could never secure for you, the forgiveness of all your sins. You've received credit for Christ's perfect obedience. You've received the salvation of your soul and the promise of a future inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. You've been adopted into the family of God and given all the privileges and rights of being his son or his daughter. You're surrounded by brothers and sisters in the Lord, united by a common purpose and mission. Paul is telling us this morning, don't get bogged down with foolish quarrels. Don't get bogged down with irreverent babble and foolish controversies. Put off your old self, renew your mind, and put on the new self. Focus on the essentials. Know them. Believe them. Talk about them. But don't divide with other Christians with those issues which are of secondary nature or secondary importance. It doesn't mean that they're not important. You can debate them with others, but let brotherly love reign and don't allow the devil to put a wedge between you and a brother or sister because of your disagreement. I didn't even get into Romans chapter 14 where Paul describes in great detail how we get along in unity with brothers and sisters that we disagree with on issues of secondary importance. So if you want greater detail, spend a little time reading Romans chapter 14. Uh, last, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, I am so glad that you are here. Um, I have the greatest of news for you this morning. It's news that's 2,000 years old. The Bible says that if you will turn away from your sin and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior by faith, you too will have complete forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your undying soul. If you truly put your trust in Christ this morning, you will receive the Holy Spirit to give you a brand new desire to do the will of God. Your money, your influence, your effort can't secure redemption for you. Only Christ can. And He did on the cross. He died for you. I pray right now that the Holy Spirit would come upon you and give you the faith to believe and to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord, and as your Savior, Savior and your King. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Amen.